Chapter 1 A Dark Time They say when a butterfly flaps its wings, it can launch a chain of events that can lead to an almost cataclysmic event. Poor butterfly forced to go through its life flapping its wings, unintentionally spawning a series of events that could affect the lives of people they'll never have the pleasure to know. I often think of human beings as butterflies, just wandering along, going from flower to flower without a clue that with every flap of their wings, they too are the cause of a series of circumstances that will shape this world forever. With each choice, a person continually affects another, and so on and so forth until in one way, shape or form, every person on this planet is connected constantly intersecting and interchanging with one another in a cosmic dance just as unexplainable as the human existence itself. It's a funny thing, if you truly think about it. At this very moment, you and I are at the mercy of the very wind of change that helped create our existence, and with any passing second, you could be swept away, off into the oblivion of unknown circumstances leading to unfathomable consequences for your life. Those around you, and to those whom you have never met. That is our connection to one another. Infinite, unpredictable, beautiful, deadly. I didn't come to this understanding till much later in life. Now at the age of 80, I sit telling my story in hopes that it will have a positive effect on the lives of others. It's a strange occurrence trying to do something positive for others. For as I learned early on in life, Something positive for others can mean something negative for oneself. My negative is the trying time I will have in recanting these stories from my past. It is not due to my age by any means, as though time has dulled my memory to some of these things. For the many cases I have had the pleasure of being a part of, it has not. You may be impressed, and I thank you to save your congratulations until the end, for as you will discover in life, the things you most wish to forget are often the very memories that stick with you the longest. It is with this that I warn you. Some of my stories are not for the faint of heart. In fact, when I think about verbally conveying these stories to my children or grandchildren, I get an uneasy feeling in my stomach stemming from the fear of saying the many unspeakable things I have seen. So I will write them here, in hopes that they may shed some light on the darkness that lies in this world. For in a world where justice fails and the rich capitulate to their greed, people need someone to believe in. People need a symbol of hope. My name is Jane Danger, and this is my story. Chapter 2 A Quiet Town The year was 1963, and I was 23 years of age living in Las Vegas with my mother, with whom I would get into frequent altercations with many of which stem from our unhappiness with our current living situation, an inability to cope with our past living situation seeing that just ten years prior we were living in my native state of Texas, in the town of Edna, with my father from with whom my mother and I fled from his alcoholic rage and ended up in Las Vegas where she began moonlighting as a dancer for a short number of years before her age caught up with her. She spent her days stuck behind a desk and her nights desperately trying to chase the dream that had long since passed. As for me, I was hired as a secretary for the local police department at age 19. It's to be said that in the year 1963, I was chasing a dream of my own. 
My lifelong goal was to be a police detective. Back then I told myself that I wanted to protect the people who were victims of domestic disputes and much worse like my mother and myself. Unfortunately, as with many women of my time, I never achieved that dream. I was sat at a desk and forced to file paperwork and take phone calls. I expected it to change until it didn't, and after four years of tedious paperwork, I decided to set out on my own. I opened my own private investigation practice just a few months earlier, and by this point, I was five months removed from setting out on my own, and I had nothing but a few lost cats and dogs to my claim. I thought I had hit my break with a missing persons case, but it turned out that the little boy was stuck up in his treehouse because he had accidentally slammed the door too hard and it got stuck. I charged no more than $30 for those cases. 20 of those I gave to my mother to help pay rent and expenses. The other 10 I plunged into the bottom of a shot glass. Las Vegas was a quiet town where one could drink in peace and on most nights only with the occasional flirt coming up to try and stake his claim in this frequently farmed land that settled in between my legs. I do admit that in a time where sex meant ownership, I excuse any man who thought to settle in my life for a long period of time. In this I gained a bit of reputation, that of which only matched my mother's. I couldn't quite grasp why we both acted the way we did, treating men like stress balls instead of human beings. I could only fathom that it was because of our past that our lust to use men only grew. Once we squeezed every drop out of them that we could, we saw no more use and threw them aside. Vegas is a town where one could find themselves lost in the glitter and sunshine, or at the end of a bar, never as so much knowing what time of day it was. I found myself the latter, as my lack of luck and funds had driven me right to the edge of the bar at a glamorous spot known as the Swing Club. was July 3rd, and I was five shots of whiskey deep into my self-destructive pattern of grieving at my own poverty and misfortune. The swing club always had the biggest acts in the world come to perform on its hollow stage, the most frequent being two crooners, solo acts that often performed in tandem for the reality of drawing two times the crowd. The crowd applauded as the crooner finished his song and pulled his cigarette from its lips, blowing out a long whisper of smoke. He looked at the crowd with a smile that glistened even brighter than the three-piece suit of the finest linens money could buy. Though he was not alone as the crowd matched him in almost every way, but the talent of singing a song of which I do admit he did beautifully. Alright folks, that's the show. He said with a chuckle that was once again matched by the laughter of the crowd who were in on the joke, seeing that he had only sang two songs. Thanks for coming out. He said as he picked up his martini from the stool placed a few feet behind him. Now I know you beautiful people paid for a whole set, but I was just called to go march in Washington for the 15th time this week. The crowd's laughter only grew louder with each passing joke 
as he took a long sip of his drink. I've been marching so much, I don't know when to stop marching. The other day I was marching, then I looked around and noticed I was in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I said, ain't it July? The crowd roared with laughter as even he could barely contain his humor as he tried to take a sip of his drink, telling me he had just made the joke up on the spot. I'm only messing around, you know. Just trying to lighten the mood a bit, folks. I got a great show for you tonight. I'm going to be singing a lot of great songs for you. In fact, this next song was recorded for a little-known picture called The Tale of Two Cities. I had the pleasure of working on this song for Global Pictures and its head executive, Mr. Galvin Young. A great man, that Young. Yes, sir. Just make sure when you go shake his hand, you place a dollar in it. I'm only joking. Mr. Young is the only man in show business that will place a dollar in your hand. That's why I shake his hand every time I see him. Once again, the place roared with laughter, and now not even the crooner could contain himself as he spilled a bit of his drink on himself before placing the glass back down on the stool. He began to snap his fingers and tap his foot, signaling the count to the band behind him. He belt out a beautiful note and the band accompanies him with a wonderful harmony of voice and instrument that swoons the crowd into a trance. My trance, however, had entrenched me firmly in the empty shot glass I held firmly in my fingers. I looked up to the bartender mentally signaling to him to pour me another. I think you've had enough, Miss Danger, he said, as he always did trying to cut me off. It never did work, but I think he felt more noble for the weak attempt that allowed him to tell himself that he put his best foot forward to keep this woman from drinking herself into an early grave. What he never seemed to take into account was the fact that as a native Texan, I could drink 10 shots of whiskey at 100 proof and not feel a thing. I will give him credit for never pushing me any further than he needed to. He knew I would quit before I got too unmanageable. He also knew that my walk home was only a few blocks off the main road. He knew that because I had told him on many of occasions as I argued for another drink. With that in mind, it didn't take more than a strong look from me for him to pour another shot. It was before I proceeded to down this shot that I realized a man was staring at me from the other end of the bar. Usually when a man stares, it's because he wants to catch your eye. Help. Tonight of all nights would have been the night to do such a thing. The warmth of whiskey often reminded me of how lonely I was, and sex often dissolved that feeling quite quickly. But this man wasn't looking at me with such a look. He wasn't trying to attract my attention for the potential of a sexual conclave. No, he was looking as if he knew me. As if he wanted to tell me something. And as if that something would have some profound impact on my life as I knew it. We both downed our shots at the same time. I couldn't tell what he was drinking, but by the way he drunk it, I could easily depict the difference between he and I. I was drinking to drown my sorrows in some sort of self-pity depression, while he, on the other hand, was drinking to garner courage. To do what? I had no idea. By glancing at his face, I couldn't tell just how old he was. His face seemed younger, but the wrinkle in his skin matched that of a person in their forties. He didn't slump over his stool like most men in their forties, pounding their drinks in avoidance to go home to their wife and kids, recovering from a hard day's work. No. His back was erect, with perfect posture, his body toned like that of someone in their twenties, a real enigma, I thought to myself. 
As he stood up from his seat at the bar, I could see his long brown overcoat barely swinging off the floor, draped over his shoulders as if it was too big for him, but his broad shoulders and long arms made up for his lack of height and girth and stopped it from touching up against the floor. Underneath it he wore a mint green shirt that buttoned all the way down. Over that was his suspenders that connected to his long black pants. The suspenders were brown to match the jacket, I suppose. The piece of his resistance was his hat, a dark brown brim with a white ribbon tied around the center. The brim of the hat was low but curled up just enough at the end of it, so one could see into the eyes of the person wearing it only when they looked up at them. If they wanted to, they could carry on an entire conversation with you, looking with just a little tilt to the ground and you would never be able to catch a glimpse of their eyes. But he looked straight at me and his green eyes were like piercing emeralds that shot from his body and into mine, familiar but yet distant, like a relative that I hadn't seen since I was a child. As he made his way over to me, an uncomfortable feeling came over my body. I knew this man couldn't hardly want any trouble. If he did, I could put him down with one whiskey-fueled punch. I didn't view him as a threat, but even so I tightened my grip around my glass, figuring that would cause even more of a blow than my fist ever could muster. Hello, he began with a cackle in his voice that sent the smell of a freshly chewed piece of gum that he probably had hidden under his tongue and the wafting breeze of the tequila he had just drank through the air. Are you Jane Danger? He asked with hesitation and to my surprise, he spoke with a British accent. That depends who's asking. I responded, trying my best to flash my eyes at the bartender to pour me another shot. My name is Reginald. Reginald Marley. Three weeks ago, I saw your ad in the paper for your services, and I was wondering if I could borrow just a moment of your time. I was taken off guard by the mention of my ad in the local paper. I could only muster enough money to place a small ad on the back page. Instead of going the usual route and posting my name and job, I spent a little more to have printed a small speech I wrote, more a plea for work detailing my work as a woman and my longing to help others. Sappy, I know, but I wanted to make myself stand out. Look, I said, cutting him off rudely, realizing this man was no threat to me. If it's a cat or dog you're looking for, save it. I decided to wave over the bartender to settle up. He came over with my tab and placed it down on the bar. After a quick look at the bill, which totaled about $1.50 per shot, I quickly realized that I was a few bucks short and began looking for an escape route. That's when this Reginald guy put down a 20 on the bar. Keep the change, he said to the bartender, and before I knew it, this 20 was swept off the counter. That's when Reginald turned his attention back to me, and I to him wondering who this random guy was who had just paid for my drinks, and more importantly, what he expected to get out of the deal. I'm not looking for a missing cat. I'm worried about my friend, he said to me with a little more conviction, gaining courage the more he spoke and now I could see the look in his eyes wasn't as fierce as I had made it out to be. There was a passion, of course, but there was also sorrow. I collected myself and stood from my stool. Why are you coming to me with this? Haven't you tried the police? The police have closed the case. They presume him dead, but haven't produced no evidence to the claim. If he is dead... He paused and took a deep breath, struggling to cope with the thought of his friend being dead. I at least need to find his body. For some closure, I'm sure you can understand. Your ad said you wanted to help the unfortunate. 
that's why I came to you. Yeah, well, don't believe everything you read in the papers. Thanks for the drinks. I began to walk away not realizing how drunk I was and stumbled. It took me a second to regain my composure and in that time Reginald thought of something that would change my mind. I'll pay you as much as you want, he said loudly. Safe to say that stopped this poor girl on her tracks. I wasn't convinced to take the case, but at least I'd hear him out. Alright, I said just to keep him from breaking into tears in the middle of this club. Follow me. I led him to my place, or as I should say, my mother's apartment. The apartment wasn't big and the building nothing to look at. It was a few blocks off the strip, but I led him here because it was a crowded building in the middle of a neighborhood where everyone sees and hears everything. I led him into the kitchen, which was adjacent to my bedroom, which, as it would turn out, doubled as the living room. I could see he was taken aback by the mess in the kitchen. It was clear my mother had one of her guests over. I would offer you a seat on the couch, but as you can see, it doubles from my bed at the moment. No, it's fine, he said as he cleared off a spot on the tiny table in the kitchen to sit at. I took the liberty of pouring some tea. I would have offered him some, but I figured he was so turned off by the mess that he wouldn't want to drink or eat anything that came out of this place. So I poured myself a cup to help me balance my buzz as I was about to enter the stage of drunk where my dizziness fades and was replaced by a raging headache. I sat across from him and took a sip of my tea. There was a moment of silence between us. It's as if what he was about to say was so hard that he had to muster up the courage to get it out. I used to have a career in Los Angeles. Hollywood, to be more precise. What happened? Politics. I was a score composer. I made the music. I know what a score is, I said again, cutting him off and trying to get him to the point. Well, I had a friend, also a score composer. His name was George Mead. Why do I feel like that name sounds familiar? I asked him, but he didn't answer. He avoided that question and continued on. He was a good friend of mine for many years, but recently I had moved away from Hollywood. We would write to each other on a regular basis, and I fear now that he may be into trouble. What type of trouble? Hollywood is a treacherous place. It's filled with many people with fragile egos. People who don't like to have their power tested and will do anything to stay on top. You're telling me that people who make moving pictures killed your friend. I'm telling you that the people who make moving pictures will do much worse than just kill someone. He said as he reached into his jacket and pulled out a manila folder he placed on the table and slid it over to me. Here are some of the letters he sent me. I do warn you that some of them can be very disturbing. I took it and opened it but quickly shut it as the amount of papers filling it would have exploded all over the floor. This man is missing. How long? Several months now since his last letter. He was a good friend of mine and a good man. I only hope that he isn't dead somewhere in that filthy town. Maybe the post office is a little slow. That seems to happen from time to time. We only live a short drive away. It takes no more than a week for a letter to get from him to me. Maybe he didn't write this week. We have written to each other every week for the past 20 years. You want me to go to Hollywood and look for this man? Precisely. Do you have a last known location? No. 
not even on the return address to these letters. The letters didn't have a return address. So how did you write back? He didn't say anything for a few seconds, and this time, judging by the scared look on his face, I could tell that this might be more serious than I had first imagined. That this man sitting in front of me might be in serious trouble, and so was his friend. Do you have any connection to anyone that might know where he is? I asked. No. Does he have relatives in the area? He has no living relatives. Then how am I supposed to find him? Your ad said you were a detective. I'm a private investigator, licensed only in the state of Nevada. If I went to Los Angeles, I would not only be breaking the law, but I would be possibly interfering in a police investigation. I told you the police have already shut the case and presumed him dead, and what makes you think I will find anything different? Because you're not from Hollywood. Hollywood isn't the place for morality, which is why I need someone from the outside to penetrate inside. Why me? There are other investigators in this town. Why did you come to me? Because you're the only woman. You know what it's like to be forgotten. My first response was to be offended, especially in my days of fading drunkenness. Only then I took one look around my mother's apartment, being sure to pay special attention to my bedroom that was no more than a couch with sheets draped over top. After turning my attention back to Reginald, I realized that he was from Hollywood, where living is of the extravagant means, and this hovel of an apartment is nothing more than a zestful for rats. I was forgotten, living in the shadows of the strip, but never to grace the stage. My mother was forgotten, and as it now turns out, George Meade, one of Hollywood's own, had been forgotten. Just then, we were interrupted by the one person I hoped would not be joining us. My mother walked in, her robe closed around her mostly naked body. It never surprised me to see my mother this way, nor did it surprise her to see me with another man. That didn't mean she never went out of her way to embarrass me in any way she could. Well, isn't this a nice surprise? Different from most of the men you bring through here, she said as she visibly sized up Reginald. I'm actually impressed, though I don't think he's a keeper. She loudly whispers as she leans over the table, putting her cleavage directly in the eyesight of Reginald, who was too shy to look directly at her, but too much of a man to look away. We're discussing business, if you don't mind, mother, I said with a menacing tone that she took all too lightly. Of course, of course, business before pleasure. Always get the money up front, smart girl. I taught you well, you taught me nothing. Then there was an exchange of silent looks that made Reginald more uncomfortable than he already was. Listen, he began with that nervous crackle in his voice. I hope you will consider the case. He stood up. Sit down, Reginald, I said without ever taking my judgmental eyes off my equally judgmental mother. He sat down almost as quickly as he stood up. If you excuse us, mother, I would like to get back to discussing business with my first real client. My mother gave a surprised look of sarcastic shock. Well, this is my house, and I'm going to take my time and make myself a cup of tea. I already made tea. I don't like your tea. And so, she proceeded to take her time in making herself a fresh batch of the same kind of tea that I had made only minutes ago. Only when she finished did she leave us to our business. Pleasant lady, Reginald said. Don't flatter her. And don't pretend you're off the hook here. Why can't you go to LA and get them yourself? I'm a member of the film community. They scout me out as soon as I hit the airport. You think this goal is pretty high up? It's Hollywood, Miss Danger. There's nothing. 
that doesn't have a rich man attached to the end of it. And you can pay me. Like you said, how much are you asking? Enough to get me out of this place. I can give you 1,000. 500 now and 500 when the job's done. I can give you the entire sum now. We'll discuss the rest after this is over. That took me by surprise. I'm going to need expenses. Train fare, hotel, drinking money. I said as I continued to press my luck. Drinking money? I simply shrugged my shoulders at his question at my obscene request. Honestly, the thousand would have been the drinking money. But I was seeing how much I could squeeze out of him. Fine. But you need to leave tonight. I haven't had enough time to review the letters. Tonight, he said, finally cutting me off. His life could be in danger. The longer we wait, the more chance you have of finding him dead. His sense of urgency was a bit alarming, but as the all-too-familiar banging began to come from my mother's room, I quickly began to believe the sooner the better. We shook hands and took off out the door before my mother's horrifying moaning began. Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage is an official copyright of Avery Goodwin. Voice recording by Avery Goodwin. Sound mixing by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Score by Averex. Foley by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Some of the sounds heard here were downloaded royalty-free from pixabay.com. On the next episode of Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage. I exited the train with a clean thousand dollars in my pocket. Reginald booked me a room at the Roosevelt. When he told me at the station before I boarded the train, it sounded like a dump named after a president. Why hello there. A nasally voice came from the maitre d' behind the counter as I approached. The rocking of the studio tram was more than exhausting. Mr. Young, I shouted out as I hurried towards him. He stopped and turned, squinting, trying to recognize me. It was clear that he couldn't. 